You're listening to ayahuascapodcast.com. Hi guys and welcome to ayahuascapodcast.com. Uh, as always with you, the host Sam Belief, the founder of La Waira Ayahuasca Retreat. Today we're joined by Rachel Harris. Rachel is a PhD She's a psychologist. Uh, she has 40 years of private practice. Uh, she's a prolific researcher, uh, published more than 40 studies in peer-reviewed journals. Um, uh, her books are Listening to Ayahuasca, and her recent book is uh, Swimming in the Sacred. In her last book, she interviews uh, women psychedelic guides uh, in the psychedelic underground and uh, we're going to talk about rachel her life story her journey and also her latest <laughs> book rachel welcome hi thank you sam <laughs> rachel before we start talking about your book can you tell us what what brought you in that line of work <laughs> You know, when, when I, I just want to say something about the recent book, The Swimming in the Sacred. Those are the women elders from the psychedelic underground. They've been practicing for 30 or 40 years, and they were trained by some of the luminaries in the psychedelic world. And um, that was in the late 60s and 70s, and I was in California during that time also. And I knew some of those luminaries. I was around a good supply of good quality psychedelics. And um, I chose to go to graduate school and not work underground. And uh, so I knew some of the same people that they knew. I had a lot of similarities in my background, but I went a totally different uh, direction. And so that was uh, how I came to this work to begin with. I mean, the, the ayahuasca story is more specific, and that was after my daughter was launched, she was in her 20s, I was living in Princeton, New Jersey, and I wanted to go to a, um, to a, a winter escape, to a retreat center that was warm and by the ocean, and I had heard about this place in Costa Rica, and I just went to go swimming and get a suntan, <laughs> and then a day before I was leaving, the woman organizing the trip called and asked if I wanted to be in the ceremonies, and I didn't know what she was talking about. I mean, I really hardly looked at the program. <clears throat> Jeremy Narby was talking. He was there all week, and I didn't recognize who he was. So I, you know, as soon as I realized, oh, it's a psychedelic ceremony, I was ready. I mean, my daughter was launched. Uh, you know, I was ready to pick up my old life from the late 60s in California. So that's that's how I sort of just fell into it. It's a, it's a great story. And uh, I like how your ayahuasca experience uh, seems uh, uh, synchronistic. And uh, in this line of work, you, you start noticing lots of synchronicities where, where things just, just come your way. Um, you know, when, when you talk about psychedelic underground, um, for, for some and for me, especially, uh, when I think about underground, I think about like a, like a dark valley, uh, sorry, dark alley in like a city and something like that. So I know that's not what it really is, but what is psychedelic no. underground? How does it look like? Well, you know, it looks very different depending on how much experience the person has. So, you know, the women I interviewed have more experience in psychedelics than anybody else in in modern Western culture. They've been working with these medicines for 30, 40 years. I mean, one woman is 90 years old now. So she was in her late 80s when I interviewed her, and she was trained by Leo Zeff, who this is a book I recommend. It's on, you can get it free on the MAPS website. It's The Secret Chief and uh, The Secret Chief Revealed. And it's an interview of Leo Zeff. So you're reading his, his words, and she trained with him in the 60s. So, you know, these women go way back and they've, they have decades of experience. So this is a unique underground. It's not a dark alley. They have medical doctors they're connected to. They refer to therapists as needed. They are professionals, but because these medicines were made illegal, they had to work secretly. 
So the big thing about the underground is that it's secret. Yeah, the, it's not really underground. I understand that, but uh, the the word itself makes it um, makes the imagination go. So it is definitely a misconception and a, a historical mistake. I believe that uh, great people like this ended up having to hide, you know, their their life's work, and hopefully it is being uh, changed now and fixed. But now the problem, and, and you talk about it a lot, that we have the generation of new guides that are sort of coming up and they're in a hurry and they don't and they don't necessarily ground themselves in this uh, beautiful experience these elders have accumulated uh can you talk to us a little bit about that well you know i i was at the i presented them at the maps conference in in last june 2023 in denver and this lovely young woman comes up to me and she says i'm i'm a guide i'm working in the underground <laughs> I said, oh, that's that's wonderful. And how do you do your medical screening? And she said, what's that? Mm. So I really say, don't go to anyone who does not do comprehensive medical screening. And don't lie to them because <laughs> people lie about their medical histories. Don't do that. This is a serious thing. And so the women I interviewed, you know, have well one woman has 16 pages of medical questions that she has people fill out so they're professionals and they're working with consultants who are medically trained and if the the people doing the screening are not doing that level of interviewing don't go to them so there's a i i really say look it's a buyer beware market there's a wide range of people so-called working guides in the underground, but be selective, be careful. And I, I tend to like people who have, uh, I tend to want to work with people who have served apprenticeships, who have been trained for years. And the concept of an apprenticeship is not well known in our Western culture. But um, for instance, I'm, I'm staying at a friend's place in California, and he's in the jungle in Peru now as we speak. So, um, you know, I'm escaping from my main island where I, I don't spend the winter. And this is a, a dear friend of mine, and he's been working with Shipipo Shaman. It's now seven years. That's an apprenticeship. Mm -hmm. It's a very long time. And one of the women I interviewed, for instance, she said she also trained with a, a different Shipipo Shaman. And she said, after about six years, he said to her, you're ready to sing in ceremony. And she said, no, I'm not. Um, and she sat right next to him. And this is sort of a tradition for the apprentices. She sat next to him. And as he sang in ceremony, she knew the Icaros. She sang a nanosecond right behind him. And then they could talk. They could whisper in the ceremony, in vivo, um, about what they were seeing and the impact of the Icaros. So she had that kind of direct supervision and training. That's what I look for mm -hmm. in a guide. That's beautiful. Um, I, I have a personal story about people lying in the questionnaires. One of the questions in our uh, preparation is uh, about uh, psycho history of psychosis. Um, and... Uh, Recently, we had a person that obviously said no, no, no to history of psychosis. But in the word circles, then later sharing in in the story, it came out that that he had psychosis, and um, yeah, it was I had to talk him talk uh, talk to him about that. Yeah, people unfortunately have secrets, and uh, yeah, Titus and uh, and here in Colombia, the shamans are called uh, Titus, and our Titus yes. he he also travels with his apprentice, and he. Um, He's a Mexican uh, Mexican guy. He he sold all his possessions and basically dedicated his life to learning that craft. And it uh, it definitely takes a long time and a certain amount of talent and 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 uh, good intentions. And, but yeah, I do notice a lot of times now, and it happens to us as well. Uh, personally, I'm not a shaman. I'm not trying to be a shaman. Maybe eventually someday if I get a calling for it. But we get people oftentimes that come and after one ceremony or one retreat, they yes. they want to be a shaman. And what I like to say is don't confuse uh, an invitation to study at the university, like, you know, this letter that you received that you've been approved to study. 
don't confuse it with an actual diploma and call yourself a shaman because in between that it's a there's a long period of training what do you think about this concept of rushed shamans and and the sort of new generation wanting to be shamans and just speeding the process well i i love your answer it's very close to the um the answer i got from one of the women elders and and she said um if you feel like you're you've received a calling it's a calling to begin to study it's not a calling to lead ceremony so it's really the same thing you're saying and uh i i think that's a great answer uh, I, I think our culture doesn't really appreciate what an apprenticeship is and how long and, and how, how comp, how, what level of personal development and skill is involved in working with these medicines. And uh, we, we, we don't really respect it. I mean, let's be honest about it. We, we have to learn more about what it means to work with these medicines and to learn from them and with them. I, I even interviewed one woman, this is not one of the elders, and she had been uh, to one of the retreat centers in Peru. And she said, well, everybody's doing a dietist, so I thought I should do one too. And I said, well, are you working with a shaman? Did the shaman prescribe the dieta? She said, no, just everyone's doing it. So I thought I would do it. That's not how it works. I mean, she's missing that link that there's a transmission and an initiation and that it, how a lineage works. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're just not very respectful as a culture. And um, it's really kind of sad for me, frankly. But I, I, could, I could add one thing about um, one of the women, this is the one with the 15 or 16 page medical interview. She said, because she knows people lie about their... Um, medical history. And I have to say, when I get a driver's license, I lie about my weight. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not pure about this. You know, in, in a medical situation, I, I tell the truth, but there are other times I lie. But anyway, um, she said, uh, she asks them, what medications have you been prescribed? And then she recognizes if they've been prescribed an antipsychotic, that means they've had serious psychiatric problems. And so she has a couple of different ways of getting to the truth of the medical history. Mm -hmm. It's a bit like uh, cross-questioning. I believe they do in police like to ask you questions <laughs> right. to then uh, lead you to sneakily give out the, the truth. Well, regarding the, the hurry that we have in our culture, I think we can't really judge people specifically. I think it's um, it's an issue of a culture at large. We sort of know that, okay, if you go to the medical school, you study a certain amount of years, you spend a certain amount of money, you get a certain amount of results, and it's really hard for us to deal with the uncertainty of, you know, shamanist world where, you know, you sit somewhere uh, for a long time and 10 years passed and, and then you get some result. But it's uh, I think people go to it for a wrong reason. I think shamanism, being a shaman is, is a is a blessing and a curse. And it's actually not something you should really want to do. It's something that normally is uh, forced upon you by some higher, higher presence or spirit. But talking about that, uh, now uh, you mentioned that, that um, there, it's very important for uh, guides that that get into work with psychedelics, let's say psychedelic assisted psychotherapy, uh, it's important for them um, to to learn about uh, plant medicines or or psychedelics and experience them themselves first um, to a certain extent, and not just get into it uh, with uh, with only knowledge but not knowing what what it actually is. You know, the, the women guides did years of work on themselves with medicines and with psychotherapy to kind of um, to clear their own systems. N not that it's not that we're ever completely clear and clean, but to do their own work. And, you know, you want this in someone working with these medicines. And, and I want to clarify that these women are not therapists. They do preparation and they do debriefing or minimal integration, um, somewhat akin to the 
the research teams, a couple of sessions maybe. But if somebody really needs therapy, they refer them to a, a, a licensed therapist, someone who is familiar with the medicines and knows how to work with the experiences. And that's a, that's a longer term process. I mean, when we talk about the, the limitations in, in the North American culture, there's another limitation that I like to talk about. And that is that we in the States went for psychedelic um, experiences, but in Europe, they work with psycholytic which means smaller doses, but clearly a journey, but so not a microdose. Smaller doses where the person can be, can talk to the therapist. So they're not, they're not getting, you know, swamped with the experience. And the purpose is not to get to a, a mystical experience, but that, that, that the experience is grounded in ongoing therapy. So the, the system may look like one journey a month, and two therapy sessions a week. So you can see that this the the medicine experience is is well integrated into the therapeutic process. And that's a whole different way of working with medicines that we we have not begun to look at or even study. And yes, it would be more expensive and you know, we are because of the great need, we're trying to research the most cost-effective approach. But I think it's important for us to know there are other approaches as well that are not the same. Um, and we have just, this is still being used in Europe today, but uh, I don't really know anyone who's doing this in the States. It's great that you mentioned the dosage and um, the strength of the experience because the the shaman we currently work with, uh, he is... Um, he is great at finding that dose to get people to this productive space where they where they get the healing, but not to blow their mind away so that they get sometimes even more traumatized than before and get, you know, the sort of psychedelic PTSD. And a lot of times we yes. get we have to deal with a lot of impatience when people come and they want they want it immediately, they want it now, and they they want the strong experience. But I, I believe that they be careful what you wish for because when when they do get there and they do go very deep they they sometimes regret it and there's definitely i've never heard this word before psycholytic but it's um it's interesting maybe a bit maybe something in between psycholytic and psychedelic maybe there's a goldilocks zone where you get a strong experience but it's not too strong um my question to you well you know this this is let me just say this is one of those mysteries for um the shaman to pour the medicine appropriately for each person. Um, and, and I generally hear from people who are older that they need less medicine. And certainly I, I, I do believe the more experienced someone is with the medicine, they know how to get to those spaces. They, they sort of, um, they don't need as much to break through, so to speak. Um, and some people are more sensitive and uh, able to shift states of consciousness more easily than other people. So they require less medicine. It is very mysterious because um, <clears throat> you can sometimes have a 250 pound, six foot five guy have half a cup and be completely blown away. And uh, it's not by weight. Yeah, and like 80 pound uh, tiny lady uh, drink three cups and not really connect. I personally am one of those sensitive people. I, I can get there on half a cup. I think maybe over time you get kind of like a map where you find that specific mind state where, where it's easier for the medicine to enter you. But it, it is a mystery because from a pharmacological point of view, there's it's really hard to explain why is that that way and how come those two people can have that kind of connection and, and next night they can they can switch and, and it can, it can go. Yes. So, but shaman, a shaman, a practice shaman, he would, a person comes to the altar, he looks at them inquisitively and then just pours the cup and somehow he knows what they need, not what they want, but what they need always. That's part of the mystery, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, so obviously you, you, um, have interest and in explored both, um, 
the, the, the scientific approach and the, and the therapeutic approach to psychedelics and also the more traditional, more uh, shamans, elders kind of approach to it. What do you think about uh, new age uh, kind of psychedelics or uh, versus traditional plant medicines? For example, uh, ketamine versus ayahuasca. What, 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 what do you think is the difference? What's the... Oh, these are two totally different experiences and they're, they're really not comparable. Ketamine is not even a psychedelic. It's a dissociative. Um, it's very helpful if someone is suffering with treatment-resistant depression or suicidal. I mean, you know, the, the, the psychiatric drugs can take three weeks to begin to work. And if someone's really suffering and at risk for suicide, three weeks is a very dangerous time length. And ketamine can break somebody out of that in an afternoon. Now, that's amazing. I mean, psychiatry has to rethink uh, everything about drugs and, and treatment because of, because of ketamine and some of the psychedelics. But ayahuasca is completely different. I mean, you never know um, what your experience is going to be. And, uh, you know, even if you're very, uh, you know, I, I did my first ayahuasca ceremony in 05, and I'm terrified every time I go to a ceremony, and I never know what's going to happen. So it's not like it can be prescribed exactly for a certain diagnosis. We, we just never know. Yeah. So it's it's really impossible to compare them. Yeah, that's um, there, there's a there's a lot of variety in what uh, we have. Even even with plant medicines, there's many many many, and, and I keep discovering more, meaning uh, stumbling upon them. Um, personally, of course, we we focus on ayahuasca because I think it's a it's a very complete complete uh, psychedelic with um, sort of everything you you might expect, both from healing and spiritual journey. So you, you mentioned that you've tried ayahuasca before in that uh, retreat in, was it Costa Rica? The, the first the first ceremony I went to was in Costa Rica and the shaman were from Ecuador. So they were Ecuadorian. Mm -hmm. I think they were from the Shuar tribe. Can you, can you talk to us a little bit about your own ayahuasca experience? How was it or maybe anything interesting you've learned well, you know, what has not been researched is people's experience with um, loved ones who have died. And so my very first experience, I, um, I got to talk to my father again at, at the end of his life. He had died six years before that. And um, I got to re-experience my last conversation with him. So it was this incredible uh, reunion and at the, at the time of his dying, I had a, uh, an out-of-body experience in the sense that I sort of went with him as he was leaving. And it terrified me. And so I, brought my, I recognized what it was right away. And I brought myself back down, grounded myself, sat down, and, and you know, <laughs> did grounding. Had my feet on the floor and looked around me. But I, I, I was afraid if I went with him, I would die also. And of course, I was, I was, it was 20 years ago, I was healthy. Um, but in the, in the first ayahuasca ceremony, I was able to travel with him and to go with him across, you know, across the, what's usually called the river sticks. But for me, I experienced this as a, a dark void, a starry night. And it was really wonderful to have that resolution and to say goodbye to him again. And um, that was just extremely therapeutic. And I've had a lot of people, most, more with ayahuasca than any other medicine, tell me they were able to talk to someone who had died or someone who had committed suicide and they were able to talk to them and understand what happened and, and to resolve their... Um, any feelings of guilt and, and loss. It, it's this wonderful reunion opportunity. And uh, ayahuasca is, I mean, it is the, the vine of the dead. I mean, it's very specific for crossing that, that re, you know, crossing into the, the, the death realm. I mean, an interesting thing happened for me because as I started writing the book, interviewing the women, 
um, I realized I had never done the protocol that everybody, that, that the, the, um, the research uh, teams are using, the standard protocol with music and earphones and, and eye shades and lying down under, I had just never done that because I had done psychedelics in the 60s. We were always out in nature. We had a spiritual approach to it, but we were, you know, on the top of a, a ridge, a mountain in Big Sur. It was always gorgeous, but it was about nature. Um, and so I arranged to do an MDMA session with one of the elders. And I thought, well, this will be fun. You know, MDMA is is, you know, heart opening and, and, um, you know, fills you with oxytocin. It should be a wonderful experience, if not outright fun. I went right to an ayahuasca place. My MDMA session was all about dying. <laughs> mm. And I, you know, how do I understand that? I think it's just because I, 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 I have the express train to the ayahuasca territory. So it was very therapeutic for me in the sense of working with my own end of life issues and, and mortality, but it was not the fun experience that I was looking forward to. So you, you, you know, you just never know how your system's going to respond to a journey. And, um, ayahuasca has a pretty strong imprint in me over these last 20 years or so. Thank you for sharing that. And what you mentioned about um, talking to diet relatives, because we we do receive about 700 people a year. It, it's a recurring theme, which is very interesting. But uh, what's very mysterious is that people not only talk to dead relatives and sort of <clears throat> make peace, but sometimes they get specific instructions <clears throat> to, let's say, talk to other family members and tell them something that there is no way they could have known and it sort of freaks people out. So I no longer think it's just a, a product of your imagination. Uh, I think that there definitely is a connection. And a few, few episodes ago, I interviewed um, Mary Taliano and she's a, basically a person that guides people in their uh, end of life process, people who are, who are dying of cancer and she uses psychedelics as well to, to help them. And, um, uh, there is, there was, I don't know if you know anything about it, and I would be very curious to know if you do, but um, in ancient Greece, they consumed this psychedelic called Kikion, which, um, uh, which was once a year sort of event. And, uh, but their, their motto, I believe, was if you die before you die, you don't die when you die. So it's kind of like using psychedelics as a um, rehearsal for death and uh, sort of learning how to navigate that space. What, what do you think about all that? Well, that this is an ancient tradition in uh, Eleusis. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it's uh, the name of the book. It, it's um, Illusion Mystery. Journey to Eleusis or so, Journey, something like that. Um, and so they have found uh, that there are remnants of plants that were mixed with the wine. And it was a, an initiation process to deal with people's f mortality fears that are classic. I mean, you know, we never know how we're going to deal with death and there is real preparation. And so um, this was done in, in a sacred secret setting. And it was the women who mixed the plants with the wine and prepared the kikion. So it's very interesting that it's a female tradition. Um, and I, you know, that this is, I mean, I think that MDMA experience, it wasn't fun, but it was another psychedelic experience that I've had that is really good preparation. Um, we'll see if it works. You know, I'm not quite ready to go, but, you know, we never, my, a friend of mine calls it um, the final exam, how we deal with our own mortality. So, you know, we can't really predict how we're going to be when we're faced with it. But, you know, I had a, a, a good friend of mine who had spent years following the Grateful Dead. And so this was, you know, this was in the 60s and 70s. And so this was, you know, this was not a spiritual setting. Well, maybe they thought it was, but it was it was a rock concert. And that was but when he sat with a doctor who basically told him, you have a year to live his response was, 
I'm ready to go. I did a lot of acid when I was younger. The doctor is sort of taken aback, but that was, and that was his real position. And that's how he spent that last year. He was, he accepted it. He built a beautiful dining room table for his wife and um, he was ready to go. And it was from those early experiences with acid. And I just recently had lunch with one of the people who who was years, you know, 50 years ago involved with the Grateful Dead. And, and um, you know, she was talking about those old times and asked if I had ever gone to a concert. And see, this is how I'm different from these women elders. I said, no, all those people, all that noise, I would be like, keep it down. Let's have a little quiet here. I could not have tripped on anything in the middle of a rock concert. So, you know, these these women elders have been everywhere in in the history of psychedelics. Mm-hmm. Um and and the theme of working with death and dying is is really pronounced. And so it's NYU who's who's doing psilocybin with terminal cancer patients. And you can you can look up on um YouTube Tony Bosis, he's the one to look for, who's been very active in that work and and talks about it with great passion for the spiritual experience preparation for dying. Uh, You you mentioned women elders, and uh, when you sort of went into the psychedelic underground, why why have you chosen to interview women specifically? Well, I you know I. Since I, since I really come from my own personal relationship with a plant spirit, not that I understand this, but clearly this is my my own deep experience. I felt that the women had more intimate relationships with the medicines, and uh, I I had interviewed a couple of the men, and you know one of the men said, "You're right to just interview women." They know more about suffering than the men do, partly because they've had their periods most of their lives. And I thought, well, that's a really interesting um, perspective I hadn't really thought of. But he was he, he said the women are less likely to get in between the person and the medicine, which is, I don't know if you know that phrase, but they're less likely to get in the way of the client's own relationship to the medicine. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, it. W- w- I I did a study that was published in a, a journal of psychoactive drugs in in 2012, where I interviewed people who had had at least one ayahuasca experience in North America, and in preparation for doing that data collection, I talked to one of the elders. This is even before I had a dream about the the swimming in the sacred book, and. Um, I, I asked her, what should I include in the interview? And uh, she said, ask them, do you have an ongoing relationship with the spirit of ayahuasca? Now that, you know, that came from a woman elder. And that's the kind of sensitivity to an ongoing relation. And, and 80% of the people I interviewed said, no, it was 75% said, yes, they had an ongoing relationship where they could connect to the spirit of ayahuasca um, outside of ceremony, just through dreams, through meditation, just being quiet, just asking for help. It was a connection that was permanent, basically. And that's where the title of the book comes from, Listening to Ayahuasca. That was my experience as well, where I heard um, instructions, literally heard the a voice yeah so that that's what led to the women i understand what it is you're describing with the connection to the spirit um you know i i drank uh, ayahuasca with both uh, titus which are male shamans and maimas which are female shamans i had great experience with the female shaman as well um it's uh, one thing I can definitely say about women is women know more about emotions naturally. They're just more in tune with um, with those kinds of things. And uh, if my wife would be a good example, she can read people as well. Even before she ever tried ayahuasca, she had this talent to know 
who's a good person and who's not, which is which is kind of shamanic in itself. But it's uh, it's very interesting. So I, I definitely I definitely agree that there's there's some special special connection. And you know, ayahuasca being a feminine spirit, as it says, you know, uh, normally is described as a grandmother. And that's how it feels lots of times. So I think it, it kind of makes sense. Uh, talking about uh, guides and ceremony or shamans, <clears throat> what what do you think is the biggest distinction and what's the difference in between, let's say, a therapist that uh, gives you psychedelics and, and an actual guide? And what is the role of a guide in, in ceremony from your point of view? Yeah, let, let me just say something. I, I was on a panel with Jeremy Narby and he 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 very clearly corrected me that there are a number of tribes that consider ayahuasca a grandfather ayahuasca. So, you know, Jeremy knows. <laughs> and I just didn't know about those tribes. But um, in North America, the colloquial is grandmother ayahuasca. But Jeremy... Uh, takes offense at that that it, it certainly is considered a masculine spirit in in many situations and i i recommend his recent book on plant teachers where he interviews a, a shaman and there's this wonderful description of the relationship with plant teachers and the spirits of the plants it's it's a lo- it's a small book and it's mostly an interview and it's an important contribution um now i forget your question it was about uh, I wanted to gu- make that guide, correction. guide versus the therapist. Oh, how is it and, different? Um, you know, the, the, the big guide? difference is, yeah, you know, I just, I, I just wrote, I'm presenting at Harvard Divinity School this Saturday. And I, so I just wrote a paper and I quoted Bessel van der Kolk, who's the trauma psychiatrist from Boston. And uh, lo and behold, he's been very involved in psychedelics since the 60s. And uh, he basically said therapists um, should say very little during the ceremonies. They should, um, I think he says something, he plays a tape of of a ceremony therapy session. And he says the therapists say nothing that's worthwhile or important. They're mostly saying, uh huh, I understand, yeah, go with that. I mean, it's very, very little. And, you know, therapists are not trained to keep their mouth shut. So this is a whole different way of being. And uh, it's very different from the prep sessions and the the post-ceremony sessions. So I, I really don't think therapists are actually needed during the ceremony. I don't have any problem with the women elders not being therapists. Um, it's really the guide... It, what you want is a guide who has a lineage and supervision and lots and lots of experience um, so that they know they know intuit- intuitively from their own experience how to follow the person in, in their navigation. After the ceremony, when it comes to integration, then I think that's, a, that's about therapy. And, you know, this business of one ayahuasca session is worth 10 years of therapy. I don't buy that. Um, There are plenty of people who have had lots of ayahuasca ceremonies who are still uh, jerks, men and women. I don't want to name names, but I'm sure everyone can think of someone. So I, I had one guy, early 40s. He said he believed that until after... You know, years of drinking ayahuasca, he realized his personal relationships were as screwed up as they'd always been. And so he went to a therapist and he said, now I'm really working on my relationships. I'm making great progress. I think the ayahuasca experience helped me, but I needed the therapy to really clean up how I am in relationships. So I think, you know, this is one person's testimonial, but I think therapy makes a big difference. So it's the the post ceremony sessions that a therapist is needed. I came up with an analogy. Maybe you will like it, but it definitely suits uh, the story you just described and many others that uh, come through our doors. Uh, therapy is like um, if you take analogy of like uh, coal mining, you know, or mining or digging a cave. Therapy is a pickaxe, and you're going slowly. But it's a, it's in a very organized manner. A pickaxe. Yeah, 
it's an organized matter and you can make a nice uh, neat tunnel but it's very slow ayahuasca or other strong mega doses of uh, psychedelics is a dynamite and you make a big explosion and then it's uh, it's a little messy so then once again take a pickaxe take a shovel and clear it out so this is the integration or the therapy from my perspective but if you just keep exploding dynamite and turning this rubble into powder it's not going to make it any better so i personally believe that the psychedelics responsible use of psychedelics followed up by therapy or integration is a match made in heaven because uh, one or another are great but not complete so so that's 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 what i've been observing and obviously i'm not a therapist and um but we try and do our best in providing people with um container to to actually integrate and uh, process the information they got out of their experiences something you mentioned that um you know it's about the flow of information when uh, you get a therapist and he's talking in in the therapy uh, sorry together with psychedelics right it's uh, you you're in such a suggestible state that any wrong word can put, yes. put a person in a totally different trajectory so we're, we're very conscious of that. For example, here at, at Lawira, we, we always say the flow information should be from the medicine to the people and then to, to facilitators. And all we need to do is teach them how to, how to navigate that space, but not, um, you know, teach them or, or fill them up with some kind of philosophy or, or belief system because it will stick 100%. If, if, if you use a certain terminology, then people get, um, get into that um that's that those states so yeah i think i'm talking more than you do so it's it's not nice let's uh <laughs> let's go um let's go back to um, i i i actually like the mining example i think that's i'm i think that's pretty good well one of my one of my talents and i don't have many is uh coming up with um with analogies analogies yeah. so <laughs> uh the all all of those uh, guides you interview uh uh, does any of them um, so for for people to get a little sort of preview into your book and get interested can you tell maybe a story or um, uh, tell us about one of the guides that that comes to mind that maybe will want people to buy the book and and, um, and read it you know they they pretty much uh, have similar positions on, and I, I think you stated this earlier, that if somebody's coming to them and they they said they're now getting phone calls where people sort of want to order up a mystical experience, I want to come and do a session with you and I want to have a mystical experience. Can you guarantee that? So they have to, you know, deal with these kinds of phone calls. But um, what they say is if someone is returning, wanting to return again and again, for the experience, for the sensational experience, that they don't work with them. They What they're looking for is that the person is transformed in their life. And if they don't see that beginning to happen, they don't continue to work with them just for the sensation seeking of, of psychedelic realms. So they're looking for not symptom reduction the way the, the research teams are looking for psychiatric symptom reduction. They're looking for a much broader perspective of how does the person relate to their life? What, what are they bringing back into their community to contribute? How, are, how have they changed in terms of their values and priorities? So they're looking for bigger changes. It's a much broader perspective about how the person is in their life and it's it's to the extent of it's it's and i had a quote from ann shulgan who was certainly one of the elders but not she's sasha shulgan's wife i mean these people are both dead now but um these are luminaries in psychiatric his, in psychedelic history um and ann said you know to say yes to everything to, to be able to meet everything that happens in life, good and bad, and to say yes to it. So a certain kind of Buddhist equanimity, how to, how to accept um, what happens in life, 
equally, whether it's wonderful or really challenging. That's a transformation in perspective. That's a different way of being in your life. Um, so that so the underground women were looking for those kinds of existential changes in the person and how they relate to life. So I had to mute my microphone as I got a little noisy here. Um, when you <clears throat> you talk a lot about obviously this disconnect in between the the tra the traditional you know research world and 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 new upcoming. Uh, ways to do healing with psychedelics and, and the old underground approach to it. So is, do you have any ideas about how we can mend this, sh this shift or maybe how can we marry the two worlds together? Well, I, I think the research teams should, should have consulted with the elders and they still can. It's, the research teams could connect with the elders and inter interview them and give them more of a voice. In, in developing uh, new studies. So I think that's one thing that could happen, but you know, the research teams are mostly men and, um, and they're not inclined to uh, ask the women for help when, when they really should. Uh, so I, th I think, I, I don't know how to mend this because so much is happening so quickly. And um, I, I know a handful of people who are finding their own way to elders in the community and seeking uh, mentorship. And so that's, that's what I look for. And I, 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 I did an interview with someone just the other day who uh, has really worked hard on herself with medicines and she's been in different kind of therapeutic training programs, and she's really diving in deep. And I, I only know a handful of women who are working like that. A lot of the therapists are doing a one or two week training program with ketamine maybe, or they're doing an online longer program with psychedelics, but they're not really getting the experience they need. So I, I would really say to the therapists working in psychedelic assisted therapy one way to bridge is to get more experience and to look for people in your community who have been working 20 years or more and ask ask for consultation and mentorship definitely and um researchers and, and you know what because because i'm I, I i'm retired now but i i spent most of my career as a licensed psychologist and a therapist and i have to say i think this is kind of a the a, the therapists have an inflated um sense of well i'm a licensed therapist i can do this work and legally they can uh do the integration work but they don't really understand what they're working with and um, I, I think, you know, I really recommend more experience and more study with the medicines. So the, if any of the researchers are listening, uh, listen up, you know. I don't think they're listening. I'm sorry, Sam. I can pretty much assure you they're not listening. Well, uh, you know, universe works in uh, funny ways. You never know. Maybe I'll make a short video and they will find it. <laughs> in their um in their in their instagram but if they are listening you know pay attention you know let's find balance there's um there's use in both and uh, you talk a lot about sort of underground versus the modern approach but also let's not forget the, um, the traditional approach because um there's been tribes and people who worked on um, psychedelic uh, medic medicines for thousands of years and they also are being ignored uh, because they they think that um, they're only now being discovered. But like, what about all this work that has been done for generations and generations? Uh, we should we should listen to to everyone. Should listen to everyone. Uh, there's there's merit to new technologies and new research, and we need it. But there's also merit to both uh, practical experience of um, psychedelic underground and also the traditional shamanistic um, uh, lineages and um, 
yeah, we need to find a way to bring it all together in a, in a beautiful well, union. Well, I, I can give you a, st a, a story of a failure. <laughs> and that is that there was an attempt, there was an interest in doing an ayahuasca study using indigenous shaman. And, you know, the problem is the medicines are always different. Every brew of ayahuasca is different. So how do you get it standardized? And so the way the researchers in Spain and Brazil have done it is they've freeze-dried ayahuasca. So they have a standard capsule. So when the shaman realized that the ayahuasca was going to be in the form of freeze-dried ayahuasca taken in a capsule form, they said they, they wouldn't do the study. The spirit is not in those capsules. So you see the different perspectives from the two different sides. There's a, a big gulf. And so much about what the indigenous shaman do is um, outside the Western cosmology. It's uh, we as Westerners, it's very hard for us to understand how 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 the Ikaros are channeling healing and how to be trained to do that. I mean, there's they the indigenous shaman really have a totally different cosmology. So there there really is a big gap, you know, and and um You know, what I would say to people interested in ayahuasca is find find someone, find an indigenous shaman who's probably from a family of shamans or who's grown up in that world. And, and the healing potential is inexplicable. I mean, I don't understand how it works and it's amazing. And I've, I can say like many people, that I've really benefited from working with um, initiated indigenous shaman. Well, you've just described um, my shaman because he's exactly those things. And uh, yeah, we were able to deliver this healing to lots of people, which is very exciting. And um, yeah, we're he's, uh, he's Colombian. Uh, actually, their tribe is 50% in Colombia, 50% in Ecuador, but he just happened to be ended up on the Colombian side. So very similar mm -hmm. probably to what you have experienced in Costa Rica. Um, I'm an optimist, you know, I do believe that the world is changing and maybe uh, 10 years from now, things might be different and we will get better and more mindful research or, you know, I think that, you know, the spirit and the, the up, the the higher higher consciousness something will will guide us and figure it out you know and uh, sometimes it comes through through people and their their own journeys with the medicine but the the change is happening it's uh, it's, it's starting it starts to get uh, perceived and plant medicines is um, is one of the ways uh, that that change comes from so guys I hope you enjoyed this episode if you like our podcast and would like to support us and psychedelic revolution at large. Please follow us and leave a like whenever you're listening to this podcast. Nothing in this podcast is medical advice. It's intended for educational purposes only. Limpia, limpia.